Let me tell you a story, podcast number 99. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind. It is a truth universally You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Steve will start us off with an excerpt from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal. Then we'll read together the second installment of Michelle Netton's long, short story titled Different Mirrors. After that, I'll begin Chapter 32 from Winds of Wyoming, and Steve will finish off the podcast with some kid chuckles to leave you laughing. Twenty-two days and a wake-up. Twenty-two days and a wake-up, not counting my days off. That's prison talk for when a guy is getting out. They leave first thing in the morning, so that's the wake-up. I only have 17 more days of work. My favorite officer asked me the other day, You're going to start counting down, aren't you? I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I am now. I'm going to another prison, which is a minimum restricted prison, just a hair up from our minimum, but ours is so much more strict than they are, I'm told. It's very hard for a librarian whose job is public service to have so many restrictions. I will have the same administrative rules. My clerks don't want me to go, and I will miss some of them. Mr. Smith, the names have been changed to protect the guilty, with his dry sense of humor. My clerk with a very high IQ. They all like to tease me when I screw up, but especially him. Like the week I dropped a typewriter and the laminating machine, breaking both. They didn't even know I dropped my handheld radio, too. So they told me I was not allowed to touch any of that type of machinery. Then yesterday, Smith had a book he was taping because the cover was ripped. I said, oh, that happened when I put it in the drop box. It's my fault. He said, oh, so it's not just electronics that you destroy, huh? I think it's good that they know that I'm not perfect, that no one is perfect. I think these guys think they have screwed up so bad they may as well not try to have a normal life because they can't. Smith calls the other inmate clerks my children. If I say something like, Who did that? He says, One of your children? I just came from listening to the choir sing at a local church. You can't imagine how much it means to them to have a staff member come and listen to them for support. I was sitting at a table afterward having snacks with a murderer and talking to him. He said, We knew you were leaving before you did. We see things, feel things. And I'm not the best about not letting my feelings show, either. He went on to say, You have just the right amount of firmness, enforcing the rules and all, and yet caring about letting guys express themselves and giving them information. He was one of the only two guys who entered my poetry contest, so they both won. He said, Even though you only had the two of us enter, you made us feel important by acknowledging us. I told him that the major said he was the model prisoner and I should hire him. I told the major that he hadn't applied for a job. He actually blushed, which I couldn't tell because he is black. But he said so. He was very touched and almost cried. 
Anyway, he said, I'm not subservient enough for the staff. He said, if you were to become subservient, you would lose yourself. Very smart guy, one of many. They also are not happy that I'm leaving. Another clerk who likes to write is a different bird. He writes book reviews for me, has books all over the counters with them sticking out, his ideas. This guy says he worked for NASA and Boeing and hated it, so he left, fell on hard times, and forged a bunch of checks. Now taxpayers pay $28,000 a year for two years in order to punish him for writing a couple thousand dollars worth of bad checks. Does that make any sense? Why not make him work somewhere to pay the restitution? He was on the lam, so to speak, and found himself as a waiter in a resort. And lo and behold, he loved it. So he thinks he's found his niche. It fits him. He comes in and tells me what they had for dinner. We had the best lasagna. It was just right. Just enough meat sauce, pasta, just the right consistency, with this salad with all kinds of greens in it. Just marvelous. Yeah, little Mr. Perez, who is a disc jockey on the outside, is so mellow and easygoing that he has had to fight, so to speak, to make his niche in my group of clerics. He's very quiet, always in a good mood. His crime was stabbing his significant other because he couldn't take any more. I hope he will do well when he gets out. Another clerk hit a man with his car and killed him. The man was drunk and walked out in front of the guy's car. Well, he had meth in his car, so he left the scene. He got six years for that. He also said that if he had only gotten two years, he would be right back at it. So he is very thankful about the judge giving him six years. I told him a young gal in my criminal justice class says drug addicts will never change. Since this guy is the head of Narcotics Anonymous Group in our prison, I asked what he thought about that. He said, when I have a meeting of 30 guys or so, every guy in the room is a miracle. They should all be dead. I should be dead. My mother walked in my bedroom and I had a gun in my mouth and she just stood there and cried. Wow. I told the gal that if I didn't think these guys could change, I wouldn't be working in a prison. There is Mr. Black, who is so quiet and shy, and said I saved his life by giving him FEMA books to study because he was going out of his mind with nothing to do. A murderer. Wow. The murderers are often this type. I don't understand that yet. I have to deal with guys like this one big, mean-looking guy. He was trying to bulldog my clerks, so when I would see him there, I would go out and hang around the desk. You have to back up your clerks since they cannot put themselves over the other inmates. If you want to keep any respect, you better be there for them. I wrote reports and warned my officers about him since he had threatened one of my clerks more than usual. One day I came out and there he was, so I hung out, and he hurried up and checked out and went to leave. I said, Mr. T., did you forget your ID? He said, oh yes, thank you. I think it freaked him out because I knew his name. I have not had problems with him since. In fact, I was upstairs the other day and he asked me if he could take the library test. I said, oh sure, come on down any time and take it. Like I would hire this bully. Anyway, I started to go downstairs and remembered I had to go to the gym to pay for a picture another inmate had drawn for me. And the guy said, are you following me? I said, well, somebody has to keep an eye on you. I am not afraid of him. And yet my favorite officer said, now there is a mean guy. You can just tell.
The kid who drew me the picture has no family, and he's trying to make some money to have a start when he gets out in a few months. He likes devil stuff, so I had him draw me a baby angel. It was one of his best, too. I told him I wanted his signature on it, so when he got famous someday, I would have this picture worth lots of money. He got embarrassed and said, Yeah, I'll probably be on the ten most wanted list. I said, Well, you'll still be famous now, won't you? Yes, I like working with these guys. Different Mirrors, Part 2, by Michelle Netton. I'm going to pick up with just one sentence from our reading in the last podcast. Marla smiled to herself, a tiny bit glad she'd made him be the one to feel a little self-conscious. So, you work here in the restaurant washing dishes? He said after a moment. He said it as a statement, but it sounded more like a question. You seem surprised by my employment. She sipped her coffee. And in answer, yes, I wash every single one. She smiled, down to your cup. Why? He asked in a tone that indicated curiosity, not judgment. Why this job? Or why work at all? I could try to explain it, but I couldn't expect you to understand. Not that I owe you any explanations. There was no malice in her voice. No, you don't, he said pleasantly. But I eventually owe one to Robert. He stretched his fingers and legs, seeming to enjoy the quiet environment and a chance to sit down. She frowned. Yes, we keep coming back to that. I'm sure he told you he thought my behavior to be inappropriate, right? Yes, I believe that was the word he used. Finding you was very important to him. He's paying me very well to track you down. And I could pay you even better to forget you did. Do I stand a chance at that? She looked directly at him, waiting for an answer. He paused before answering. I don't like to think that I can be so easily bought and sold. Be hard to build up a good reputation with clients that way. But it's not as though I'd be aiding and abetting a fugitive. You're not a criminal. You don't have to be on the run. Not from the law, but you obviously haven't dealt with Robert as long as I have. He said he was concerned about you. That's what he told you, but what he wants is for me to step in where Richard left off, to stay in the political arena and be under his thumb in the same way. But I'm not complying, and I cut off the funds and the campaign support. That's what's getting at him. You know him better than I do, but I have to say your assessment matches what I've seen. I also have to say your change of lifestyle intrigues me. Marla picked up his card and studied it. Eric Logan, private investigator. In Everett, just as he'd said. I suppose I don't have anything to lose by telling you my side. Maybe if I can make you understand why I'm here, or better yet, why I'm not in Seattle, you'll change your mind about telling Robert where I am. But if you want an explanation, we'll have to go for a walk. They're closing here soon. Eric pulled out some folded dollars and set them on the table. Marla carried their cups over to the bar and said goodnight to Louis. She gave him a reassuring smile and returned to join Eric at the door. Follow me, she said, leading the way to the beach. 
They walked in silence. She felt him glancing at her occasionally. What? she finally asked, sensing that whatever he was processing had to do with her. I'm still trying to reconcile the image I had of you before with the woman I'm seeing now, and with the woman I saw on television from time to time, with your husband. I don't typically rub elbows with politicians, but when I've seen them in person, they have an air about them that's hard to describe, one you don't seem to have. Marla listened to the waves, trying to draw a sense of calm from their soothing sound. I think I know what you mean. I lived a certain modus operandi myself when I was in that circle. Looking back, I'm sure I even adopted that air you described. It's easy, necessary even, in that life to feel like you always have to be on guard, to be ready to protect yourself from something unknown. Ironically, that's a feeling I'm having right now. She turned to glance at him as they walked and wondered if he might have expected her to still behave like a politician's wife, or at least some kind of public figure. But she knew, in her casual clothing and untidy hair, that she looked as different on the outside as she was on the inside. No more properly planned for the occasion clothing or scripted dialogue. Even her tone of voice felt different to her. When she spoke before to reporters, she felt like her words were canned, coming out so often in repeated phrases used too many times. She had a flash of memory of Richard constantly drilling into her the importance of always saying the right thing at the right time, all the while needing to appear happily married and pleased to be living their lives under a spotlighted microscope. What she had been was an autopilot, or more accurately, guided by a remote control someone else was operating. Now, at least... She was making her own choices and saying what she thought without any filtering. I did see you on TV a couple of times, usually with Richard. Though if I didn't know that was you now, I wouldn't have made the connection. I have to tell you I'm surprised you're even talking to me. It's clear that you don't appreciate the intrusion, and yet you're not hostile. Oh, I could be, I suppose, she said. I've had enough practice at being poked and prodded in the past. And I admit, I am irritated that Robert is still interfering. But I don't see the point in shooting the messenger. Eric laughed lightly in response. A trait I've always appreciated. From the little interaction I've had with Robert so far, it's easy to see how he could be a force to contend with. Oh, he's that and more. But then, so am I. At least I'm becoming so now. Richard never stood up to him. He allowed Robert to be in control. I suppose Richard wanted to be free to focus on other things. But that's another story. She hesitated, wanting to choose carefully what to say about Richard or her marriage. The sun had completed its descent, and the sky was a darkened shade of blue. The occasional street lights had come on, giving enough light to see their path. So you were going to explain the happenstance of your illustrious job, Eric prompted into the quietness with some amusement but no sarcasm in his voice. Marla welcomed the new topic. Yes, it's quite a different line of work for me, wouldn't you agree? The funny thing is that I like it. I like the simplicity. She laughed and then said, There's not much that's complicated about dishwashing. But more than that, I like the overall experience. People come to the restaurant to relax and enjoy themselves, and the atmosphere is pleasant, even when it's busy. And it gives me time to think, a precious commodity now that I've come to realize it. She paused for a moment, thinking of the right words. 
My life with Richard wasn't my life at all. It was Richard's life. I was only there for show. Don't misunderstand. I cared for him, and he for me, in his own way. And I wished him the best. What happened to him was, is, terrible. But what was happening to me was terrible, too. I'm fortunate now to have the chance to change what was happening to me. They had reached a path of hardened sand that ran along the beach. Marla turned toward it, and Eric followed her. The sound of the waves was louder now, a dozen yards away from them, keeping time with their steps. They approached some small cottages, passing one with an elderly man sitting on a porch, softly strumming a guitar. The music drifted across the night and traveled along with them. The day before the funeral, Marla continued, I was alone in that huge governor's mansion. I wandered through the rooms as if I'd never been in them before. They were so empty, and at first I thought it was because Richard was gone. But it wasn't that. There was nothing in any of those twenty-eight rooms that was familiar or special to me. She stopped to face him. You know, I never chose the furniture I sat on, the glasses I drank from, the bed I slept in. I can't tell you how much I grew to hate peach silk sheets with cream lace trim. For a moment her voice took on a bitter tone and then softened. It makes me angry sometimes, but in many ways, there's no one to blame but myself. I let it happen. This all must sound pretty spoiled, doesn't it? She started walking again, her steps making soft, crunching noises in the sand. No, not to me. I can't say I've ever had to deal with that kind of lifestyle, or silk sheets with lace trim. But I know I like my old plaid couch and worn leather recliner. I picked them, and they're, I don't know, like me in a way. That's it exactly. The things we own should say something about who we are. The things in the governor's mansion said nothing at all about me, which I suppose actually was the truth. It was like looking in a mirror and seeing nothing but the furniture. No person looking back. That scared me, and I knew then I had to make changes. I guess I'm looking in different mirrors now, and slowly but surely, I'm finding a reflection I can live with. Maybe someday... I'll even start to like what I see. For what it's worth coming from me, I'd say you're succeeding. She pondered that for a few steps and then stopped walking and looked up at him, a small smile on her face. I'll take that, for now. She turned her thoughts to wondering how a conversation between Richard and Robert would play out. She didn't want to be the subject of their conversation. Changing the subject, she asked, How long did you smoke? Eric laughed. Three or four years, maybe. Off and on. I hope it's off now for good. Have you ever smoked? No, but since I've been trying new things, maybe I should try it. She began walking again slowly, and he fell in step with her. I've never liked the idea of smoking, and I wouldn't be serious about it. But I've thought, maybe sometime if the chance ever came up, I'd try it. Well, you can do that right now if you want to. I happen to have two smokes right here in my pocket. He fished around in his shirt pocket and brought out two somewhat jostled but still unbroken cigarettes. No time like the present to start a bad habit. Marla glanced with skepticism over at the two cigarettes he held up. And what, may I ask? When you're trying to quit, are you doing with two cigarettes in your pocket? Do you think it's wise to prepare yourself to give in to temptation? Or are you merely a glutton for punishment? Eric's grin widened. Now it's my turn for a crazy-sounding explanation. I've tried quitting dozens of times, 
cold turkey. It never worked. So this last time, I smoked two or three less every day until I got down to two a day. Then each day, I put two cigarettes in my pocket to smoke whenever I felt like it during the day. And then I got the feeling kind of comfortable carrying those two cigarettes around, you know? I'd have them, but I wouldn't smoke them. When I finally quit completely, I kept the last two to carry around. I told myself if I wanted them, I could have them. But that I wasn't going to buy anymore after that. Once I smoked them, that was it, forever. And I decided I liked having them there as an option more than actually smoking them. They became your security smokes? I guess you could say that. Sounds really nuts, I know. But it's worked for three months. Marla stopped at a low wooden fence along the pathway. In the distance, the waves formed small white crests. I don't think it sounds nuts. Sounds a lot like my kind of thinking for the last three months. I've been trying to make new habits, and you've been trying to break old ones. When you put it that way, it almost sounds logical. So how about it? He pulled out a lighter. I'm not going to smoke one in front of you. You're trying to quit, remember? Anyway, then you'd only have one left. If you want to, you can smoke it, really. It won't bother me. I'm around smokers all the time, and it doesn't get to me anymore. Besides, look at these things. How long do you think they're going to last? Pretty soon I'll be carrying loose tobacco in my pocket. He smiled at her. What's the lady's choice? Well, why not? Okay. She took one of the cigarettes, handling it gingerly, and he lit it for her. She inhaled weakly, too gently, and it went out. He lit it again, and she breathed in a little harder. She held her breath for several seconds and then let out the smoke all in one cough. The smoke drifted into her eyes, making her blink, and she coughed some more. Easy does it. It takes some getting used to. But then I'm not sure you want to do that. She tried again more slowly and got a little better at it, though her eyes were still watering. She stood looking at the cigarette in her hand as if it were something alive. It feels strange, and it looks strange to see myself holding one. It looks more natural when other people do it. Eric grinned. It feels less strange all too soon, and before you know it, it's become an extension of your hand to the point where not having one when you want it is like not having a finger. Like me tapping at the table back at the restaurant. It's not a very good feeling. Marla smoked the rest of the cigarette while she thought about what he'd said, and then knelt to put it out in the sand. Then she carried the butt to one of the trash cans along the walkway. Well, what do you think? I like the fact that it's something to do when there's nothing to do. And I think I could maybe learn to like that. She started walking again. But I've learned that if I have to teach myself to like something, maybe it's best left unliked. She finished the sentence with another string of coughs. Easy does it, he said again. Good choice, and thank you. Now I only have one more of the darn things to carry around. He tucked the last wilting cigarette back into his pocket. Well, Marla coughed. We're close to my place and I could use a drink of water. She wasn't sure she wanted him to see where she lived, but she couldn't very well leave him standing there either. With more politeness and enthusiasm, she said, Would you like to come in for a drink or more coffee? I'm sure I have something that tastes better than cigarette smoke. She cleared her throat again and looked at her watch. Oh, it's awfully late and you're probably tired. Since I've started working nights, I'm usually up till dawn, and I forget that's backward for most people. I think I could force myself to stay awake for a nightcap, 
especially after the incredibly brave effort at first-time smoking I just witnessed. Okay, then. Marla led the way past the now-familiar cottages. Hers was on the right side of the street in a long row of them. They were all identically structured of adobe, with only their colors making them different. The pale shades of pink, gray, yellow, and white clay were still distinguishable in the light of the Cancun moon, which had started to rise. She took out a key and opened the front door of a yellow cottage and stepped inside, aware that Eric was following behind her. She snapped on a light, which consisted of a small light bulb under a light blue shade. The rays of light struggled with determination to brighten the room, but dim shadows persisted. Marla bent to light a few candles on a small table in the corner as well. The effect was soothing to her. She watched Eric glance around the room. The cottage was very small, with a living room, closet-sized kitchen, a bedroom off to one side, and a closed door leading to a small bathroom. She didn't have much furniture to speak of. A couple of large blue and brown woven pillows, a small wooden table and chair, and a blue sheet-covered mattress in the next room completed her furnishings. Two floral paintings in bright blues, greens, oranges, and yellows adorned the smooth clay walls. A small clear glass face of daisies sat on the wooden table. Nothing was elaborate about her place, and yet it never felt empty to her. Sparse in its simplicity, it still held a feeling of warmth. She made no apology for its humble state. Pull up a pillow, Marla smiled. I chose them myself. He grinned knowingly as she went into the kitchen. And they say great things about you. She laughed. That's good to know. Tequila okay? It's all I've got. Tequila's perfect. Marla came back with two small clinking glasses filled with the gold liquid swirling around the ice and handed one to him. Then she leaned to light another set of candles before sinking into the cushions across from him. The golden light reflected off the cream-colored adobe walls and together with the small lamp lit the room surprisingly well. I'm not sure why I'm, um, socializing with you, if you'll pardon the stiff term. You are the enemy, you know. She sipped her drink. But you're not what I expected. It's probably not a bad thing for me to talk this out somehow. I've said more tonight than I have in months. I've never talked about my past to anyone here. I'm not really the enemy. I'm just doing my job. But your job is an enemy to me. To this. To my life here. She made a small gesture that took in the room and what her life had become. Eric swallowed his tequila and set the empty glass on the floor in front of him. The look on his face was hard to read. Marla got up slowly and picked up his glass. She went to the kitchen, refilled their glasses with tequila, and returned his glass to him. I'm sorry about that. Eric took his glass. Marla sat down again. She hated that his fulfilling his job could be the thread that might unravel the fabric of a life she'd finally woven for herself. On the other hand, no apologies were necessary. If it hadn't been you, she said, it would have been someone else. We all have to do what we have to do. As if her statement was a kind of closure, neither of them spoke for a while. The silence seemed to be a noticeable presence of its own. The ease with which they talked outside in the night air was suddenly stifled in here. Marla was aware that no one had ever been in here with her before, and it felt odd. She felt the warmth of the tequila in her stomach spread outward to her arms and legs, normally a comfortable, relaxed feeling. Except she didn't feel relaxed. It had felt good in some ways to talk about herself with someone. She had said things that were true, and they were things she hadn't even realized had been on her mind. But there was still that inevitable, unanswered question. 
which so far was unasked as well. She took a deep breath and broke the silence. Are you going to give me away? The question hung between them like a trapeze swinging in midair, waiting for one of them to jump. Marla sipped her tequila as if bracing herself for his answer and looked over at Eric. You've changed a great deal here in Cancun. You've told me about some of it, and a lot of it I can see for myself. Wouldn't these changes still be true back home? She hadn't considered returning to Washington, a place she certainly didn't think of as home. I want these changes in me to always be true, but no one can help being affected by their environment. Seattle isn't home to me, and if I go back there now, or any time in the foreseeable future, the surroundings and publicity will bury me. It would be like trying to breathe underwater. Someone would always be asking questions or expecting something of me. It's not the life for me anymore, assuming it ever was. Going back is not something I can do. I have nothing to go back to. But you can't stay here forever. He looked surprised that he'd spoken the words. I'm sorry, I'm not sure why I said that. Obviously, it's not my choice to make. Winds of Wyoming, Chapter 32 Boots in hand, Mike tiptoed into his bedroom. He set the boots in a corner and fell onto the bed, too tired to undress. But after a moment, he raised his head. The loud snores came from the guest room, not his parents' bedroom. For a moment, he'd been back in high school, and the days when he'd slipped into the house, hoping his father's noisy breathing covered his late entrance. Too bad as Aunt Judith doing the snoring, not Dad. The door hinges squeaked in his mom's concerned face, illumined by the moonlight coming through the window, peered around the door. Yep, just like high school. Mom, he kept his voice low, I tried not to wake you. She stepped into the room and quietly closed the door. You didn't wake me. Her voice was hushed. When you didn't answer your radio this evening, I couldn't sleep. Sorry. Fearing a call would alert the person they were trailing, he and Clint had turned off their two-ways. Clint checked the Battle Creek fence and found the upper gate down. Again. We went looking for strays and found three cows. Took forever to herd them out of the trees and into the pasture again. She waited, obviously expecting to hear more. He couldn't think of anything to say. You look bone-tired, Laura said. She smiled. I'll let you get to sleep. Just wanted to remind you about the parade tomorrow. Thanks, I forgot all about it, he grunted. I'm supposed to meet the band for a practice before it starts. Good night, she turned to go. Mike whispered, I hope Aunt Judith's snoring doesn't keep you awake. I kind of like it. She sounds like your father. Long after his mom left the room, Mike stared at the ceiling, listening to his aunt's rhythmic inhalations. They'd found the bison grazing several hundred yards from the pasture and had, with excruciating slowness, guided them back inside the fence. Then they'd searched the forest for more strays as they followed the ATV trail, which led to the Hughes headquarters on the other side of the mountain. Nestled by the river in a copse of cottonwoods, the ranch appeared innocent, almost idyllic, in the twilight. He and Clint were standing at the edge of the grove with their horses, debating their next move, when they heard voices. They'd secured the horses and crept toward the nearest outbuilding, where a flashlight flickered behind a dirty window and vague forms moved about. 
You need to pay me. Dirty work. The voice was male, a familiar but muffled voice he couldn't quite place. Mike shoved the pillow aside and flipped onto his stomach. Did he know the voice, or was it his imagination? Then another masculine voice. Well, later. Engine's running rough. Take a listen. The sound of a small motor coming to life had startled a flock of birds roosting in the treetops. They'd risen in mass to fly in circles above the trees, loudly vocalizing their disapproval at being disturbed. That's when he'd nudged Clint. Good time to make our exit. Dark as it was, he'd seen Clint's disbelief. But don't you want to know who it is? Mike turned on his side and punched the pillow into a wad under his neck. Maybe they should have gotten closer. But what if they'd been caught? Clinton didn't know about his boot prints at Dimple's house or Bernie's investigation. He turned to his other side. He'd never be able to explain a second instance of sneaking onto other people's property to peek in their windows. Not that he'd been charged with anything, yet. Probably because the boots Caldwell took were the wrong ones. Thank God he hadn't found the muddy older pair on the deck. But the size matched in Bernie, being Bernie would eventually put two and two together and move in for the kill. Early the next morning, right after breakfast, Kate slittered crutches between the jeep's front seats, settled sideways in the passenger seat, and twisted to lift first her injured leg, then the other into the vehicle. Dimple waited until Kate had hooked her seatbelt before she put the jeep in gear and headed for Copperville. Neither of them spoke until they crossed the river and neared the town. I hope I get to see the floats, Kate said. Riding on one will limit what I can see. They'll all be on display later at the fairgrounds, Dimple touched Kate's arm. Are you nervous? A little. She brushed away the hair blowing in her face. People will ask where I've been. They'll wonder why I dropped out of sight right after the accident and right after the Duncan's money was stolen. She sighed. I'm not sure how I'll answer them. Plus... Jerry Ramsey could be spreading stories about my past. Sometimes I feel like I have ex-con plastered across my forehead. You can be like the moon when it slips behind dark clouds, Kate. Dimple slowed for the pedestrians carrying lawn chairs. You can allow your fears of exposure to obscure your beautiful personality and the joy of Jesus in your life. Or you can pry the clouds apart to let his light shine through. Don't worry about what others might be thinking today. Have fun. Sing your heart out and share your beautiful smile with everyone you see. Kate smiled. What would I do without you to keep my head screwed on straight? She pointed ahead. Look at those beautiful floats. Tractors and trucks hitched to elaborate floats were lined up along the street, and a high school band had congregated in a grassy area adjacent Main Street. Dimple maneuvered the jeep between skittish horses and antique cars, searching for the highway haven entry. The smell of manure and exhaust fumes mingled in the morning air. They'd almost made it to the other end of the street when a parade official stopped them and told Dimple she'd have to park her car. This young woman is on crutches, Dimple said. She can't. I'll be fine. Kate opened her door before Dimple could morph into schoolteacher mode. You need to find a spot for your folding chair before the crowds get too big. I don't want you to have to stand. She closed the door, found her balance on the crutches, and discovered she was facing a truck with buffalo calves pinned in the back and a whispering pines banner on the side. A couple dozen people had already surrounded the truck, some with small children on their shoulders. 
One of the calves let out a loud bawl. Kate flinched. Trudy. But then she remembered. Trudy was dead. Kate, we thought you moved away. Engulfed in a double hug by Bethany and Tricia, Kate nearly lost her footing. But she hugged as best she could with crutches in her armpits. I'm so happy to see you two. When did you get out of the hospital? Tricia asked. I've been out for a while. She pointed at Kate's wrist. And where did you get that gorgeous bracelet? From a very special man. Kate lifted her arm so that sunlight sparkled off the stones. Tricia eyed Bethany, who gave Kate a knowing look. Mike Duncan? No way. Manuel gave this to me. His mom made it. The girls both giggled. Kate was about to ask what was so funny when Clint walked around the truck. Well, well, look who's here. Miss Disappear without saying goodbye. Tricia gave him a dirty look. She was in the hospital. Not all this time. The sound of a drum and a keyboard and a female voice saying, Test, 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 caught Kate's attention. I need to go. We can talk later. She hugged the girls again and smiled at Clint. That is, if you care to talk. Following the music, which now included guitar strums, she came upon the church float not too far ahead. When the band members saw her, they stopped playing. Wanda waved. Hi, Kate. There's a step stool on the other side. Jackson set his base on a stand. We'll help you. She maneuvered to the opposite side of the truck bed and handed Jackson her crutches. He and Monty lifted her from the stool onto the platform, gave her the crutches, and led her to a plastic chair. Monty helped her sit. Pastor Chuck anchored this chair to the truck bed for you. Great. Thanks, guys. Mike, who stood next to the chair, improvising on his guitar, glanced her way. Kate smiled. Hi. He nodded and returned his gaze to his fingers without missing a beat. She looked away, determined to do what Dimple said and keep smiling whether or not others, including Clint and Mike, returned the smile. A few kid chuckles. Brady crawled in bed with us and said, he was wide awake, he said, Save room for my teddy bear, Mom. When Toby has someone under arrest, he tells them to stay stiff. Cracks Elisa up. (laughs) Elisa wrote her grandma, Carrie, to come on over and practice the violin. Brady let Becky spend quite a bit of time digging for her lip gloss in her purse before producing it from his pants pocket. It was there the whole time. After explaining to Brady that the stew meat Becky was cutting was cow meat, upon eating it, he folded his hands in his lap and said, Mom, this cow chicken sure is yummy. That's it for now. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca K. 
Terry Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.